You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Go Wild. If you haven't already checked out the Go Wild app, you need to. This app is basically a social media community designed for outdoor enthusiasts, and that includes hunters, fishermen and women, and camping and canoeing. And if you love the outdoors, you need to get the Go Wild app. It allows you to track the time that you spend outside. There is a ton of giveaways going on right now, so you need to sign up for this you know, the social media community that is Go Wild. And it can be downloaded anywhere that the go that you currently download apps. And for more information, visit timetogowild.com. Welcome to Land Lakes Podcast. It's your host Adam Keith and Matt Dye. We are headed down the road. We're driving. It's this is mobile. This is the mobile podcast. Um, we are headed to Texas. Tejas. We, we are in the middle of Arkansas right now on our way to uh, for some meetings. And uh, we frankly don't, didn't have time this week to record or weren't planned enough to, didn't plan ahead enough to record it earlier in the week. We're kind of procrastinators when it comes to the podcast. You know, I wouldn't say procrastinators. I would just say our best thoughts come together on something. How about afternoon. this? We're optimistic because we're always like we're going to have something really good come up middle of the week, well, and that's going to be the t- that's going to be the topic. You have to give it time for the topics to build and surface themselves, and that's simply what we do. And then most times we wait till Sunday evening, afternoon, and even though my wife hates that we do them on Sunday, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're just, it's a, you know, a meeting of the minds, Sunday evenings, and then we do the podcast. We do the podcast, and then you guys get it borderline semi-live, because we record them on Sundays a lot, oftentimes, and by Tuesday, they're up on the, they're up on the, uh, on the website, Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, I, iTunes, Stitcher, all kinds of places, so. I reckon it'd probably be good, you know, just as a, you know, disclosure, if there are squeaking tires or slamming on brakes or the gas or you know, making mention of other people driving and They're, their bad habits. We'll That's try to happen. control our road rage on this <laughs> one. Um, thankfully, I'm the one in passenger seat because I tend to get a little more than you. Although, I will say this. If you fall asleep during the middle of the podcast, <laughs> I mean, it's a good chance that it's going to happen because most times when your rear gets in that seat, it's lights out. At some good point, night, I'm going to go fall home. asleep. Yep, and that's why we're recording it now because uh, 
I was sitting it's there going, out. if we don't record it in 30 more minutes, I'm going to fall asleep. What so, a loser. Yeah. Lame. Anyway, so we have a, another Habitat Heroes podcast where we're going to kind of unwind and talk. See? See? Like that noise right there. Strip. It, it will also give people a good indicator of how many times you run on the rumble strip when you drive. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, or maybe it's like a um, kind of like a sound effect deal. It's like. Do, do I think you're right? No. No. <laughs> and then come back offer? <laughs> yeah. We'll um, just see how it goes. We've kind of been talking a lot, and you guys have joined us throughout the throughout the uh, the summer and the year of talking about our, our relationship with Stratton Seed Company out of Arkansas. Go figure. Um, and kind of the, the blends we've helped come up with them um, and design and really just the purpose of each each species within the blends. And we've unveiled those to you. But this is going to be now a kind of a wrap-up and show you exactly what we did with those species and what we saw uh, and some other things we learned with our food plots that are good that unfortunately we learned, uh, but we're able to share with you guys on some things, some trial and error because we don't do the same thing over and over and over thinking it's the best way we try to always tweak and find better ways and we found some great ways and we found some things that we did this year that in a couple food plots were not they weren't great so uh our yields were down our growth was down we didn't have maximum potential out of it so uh we'll talk about that in the podcast as well um it's always good to no matter what continue learning and trying in every aspect of life um, and that's what this podcast is about, honestly, is the as we experiment and oh. go to different properties, different regions of the country, um, it's a constant evolution of, you know, one, your own growth as a land manager, um, food plotter, herd manager, whatever you want to call yourself, conservationist. It doesn't matter. There's always, always something to take away from Every single year, every single growing season, every time you try something new, these different types of blends, you ought to be learning as you go along. And that's why we like these types of podcasts where we can simply go back, recap some things that we tried and some things that we will talk about that worked really well and others that didn't work really well and where our expectations are for next year with them too. That's right. Uh, before we jump into start to talk about the food plots, we do have a couple other topics. Wouldn't that be that bad we, if I got pulled over? I'm, I, we're passing a cop right now, and it's like, huh, that would that would be terrible to have to introduce a cop into yeah. the sorry, podcast. Sir. What is your name? Yeah. yeah. Would you like to join us? We're talking yeah. about habitat. Yeah. Um, Officer. And, I, and that is another reminder that we are being 100% safe. We have the head unit on, so it looks oh, like totally. a... totally. We kind of probably like truck look drivers. Like, like truck drivers or Black Hawk helicopter pilots. I think yeah. they wear something like this, and they're sitting shoulder to shoulder. Either way, we look cool. Yeah, I'm sure we're getting some strange looks by the hundreds of people we're seeing in middle of nowhere, Arkansas. They don't even know. They don't even know. They're probably used to this. <laughs> they probably are. So-and-so's got his helmet on again. Yeah. He's got the heads headset on. Um, it's kind of like the motorcycles. Yeah. You know, drivers that got, like, the built-in headsets into yeah. their helmets, it's no different. Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of feel Except like I don't it, wear a helmet when I drive. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I ought to. Or it's like <coughs> there's a lot of weird noises this vehicle makes, and so we're just trying to drown it out. You know how some people turn yeah. the radio up? I, I'm one of them. Um, yeah, so we're drowning out the background noise and focused on the podcast for the next hour. Um, one thing, uh, before we go to the food plots, as we mentioned a lot lately, and you're going to hear us mention it more and more because that's becoming such a um, awesome part and important part of our year of our career of our job is the real estate side and it's not just for the real estate side of buying and selling farms but it's really kind of our way to help you guys um, because and the reason we say this is because we get this so much from multiple people that email in at info at landandlegacy.tv um, that are purchasing property or looking for property and so by all those emails and all those conversations we've had, we've realized that this podcast is a great platform to share our knowledge on the real estate side as well as the habitat side. And they both go together. They're, they're, uh, they're hand in hand. You can't, I mean, it's very tough unless you're dealing just with leases to have access um, to be able to do a lot of the things that we talk about. So one, just in, in the from a business side of things, it makes sense to have a real estate license. But within the within the podcast, it makes sense to further educate about the processes, some challenges, some advantages to um, buying and selling land. Wherever you're at in that process, though, too, hopefully what we share is going to be applicable. Like, you know, in the, in the coming weeks, I already had a discussion with, with one of our friends, Mike, um, and we're going to talk about, you know, hey, what are, some, what are some ways a new landowner or a guy who's looking to purchase his first property, like some loan types, you yeah. know? Financing. Um, yeah, the Financing. options for, for people. And, and you think you might not qualify or be able to do it, but that's what we're going to cover. Maybe not a whole entire podcast, but just sharing these types of things, um, all aspects of, of land. Today that's we're right. talking about food plots. Today we're talking about food plots. Um, but as, as we said in the past, we're, Matt and I are part of the United Country Real Estate Agency, which is actually the oldest agency Real in the country, yep. um, they started incorporated in nineteen twenty five. Good, Ness, you seeing all that? Oh, Kudzu, Kudzu Nation. We're, we're so we're still driving, and we are all the time looking at um, habitat, and there is Kudzu everywhere right here in this part of Arkansas, which is unfortunate. Um, but so part of United Country, which is nineteen twenty five incorporated. But really cool thing I have in my hands here that probably, and you know, a lot of people haven't heard. There's a lot of people that have, but a lot of people that haven't. There's some people um, who, who read nursery rhymes at night or whatever. And I read. This is, this is the United, what is it, the United Farm Agency uni- Catalog. United Farm Agency Catalog from 1928. It's the spring catalog. And it, I just want to share this because it is so cool. Um, and this, this comes from the very first ever compilation of listings like in the real estate world that this united country is the first ones to ever put them together in a magazine and these are like snippets and and properties that were for sale at that time put together in this little um i'm not gonna say it's a catalog but it looks like a kind of like a little newspaper um so it's really cool to go back and i'm gonna share because it probably wouldn't be good if I try to drive, read, and record a podcast at the same yeah, time. Yeah, it's curvy road, too, so you may hear me ralph through the middle of this thing. <laughs> yeah. um, but 
I just wanted to, because it is so unique. It has nothing really to do with food plots, but it is so unique, and I know so many guys would get a kick out of hearing this. So this is a listing from my hometown. Um, So this catalog covers a lot of towns in Missouri, and they have a list that these new special listings are worthy of immediate action. That's the title of this uh, centerfold of this catalog and one of them is 120 acres it's number 18 number 18 listing 120 acres for three thousand dollars it's on county road farm it's five acres of grapes that's the title of this listing a farm that can appeal to you on which you can make money land is all fenced and in neighborhood of high class farms on county road only six miles all advantages good railroad High school, seven advantage. Oh man, I'm trying to read while going down the road. Seven miles cheese factory, two miles Gasconade River, fine fishing, hunting for small game, mail and telephone. 120 acres tillable, 60 acres now in cultivation. Fertile, myrtle, fer- yeah, fertile <laughs> dark loam soil for corn, hay, oats. Land lays well, balance good pasture and fine timber. Wire fenced, spring water, five acres of bearing, six-year-old grapes. Also, good family orchard, apple, pear, cherry, and peach trees. Good four-room frame house, painted white stone foundation. Two porches, fruit tree shade, well at door, barn, poultry house, smokehouse, and well house. A real buy at 3900 3, so excuse me, not 3000 3900 It's very fine print, and we're driving down the road. Uh, only 1000 cash needed. Terms on balance to suit and possession arranged. Your work here will mean success. This and other selected bargains here shown by C.A. Stevens, Mansfield, Wright County, Missouri. You know what's crazy? As you read it, it's like, okay, what happened to two different things and it was 120 acres of tillable ground, I think it was, with black dirt. Where'd that black dirt go? Because I don't see it around Keyword, there. tillable. Yeah. Gone. <laughs> Atmosphere. Dust bowl. 1928. Um, yeah. By 1945, that black gone. loamy dirt was gone. Next to creek. Creek floods. Yeah. Turned over soil. Washes down creek. Yeah. Gone. That's And then what the happened. other one was, uh, I thought it was cool. Um, they didn't even mention... You know, big game at all. They just said small game, awesome small game hunting, something to that extent. And it's like, man, you know, I guarantee there's quail. Guarantee there's rabbits everywhere, and squirrels, and but so. But there forth. wasn't many deer and turkey back in those right, days. That's right. why small game was important. So important. Uh, but they also that means to me, you know, the habitat beyond just that tillable ground and pasture and everything else was suitable for small game. And my grandpa was the he was on the podcast way back, but he was alive in 1928, and that was back in the days when they ate possums and raccoons. Yeah. So, of course, um, the small game was important because that was a crucial part of their diet. Had to have been. Yep. Yep. So, to me, that that was just a great example of the difference of of land pricing and and uh, how th- times have changed and how. 
kind of a look back, even at the way that I read that exactly the way it was written, and it was very choppy. It wasn't like a big, drawn-out, elegant write-up like you see. Land six pic- picturesque views of Ozark Mountains. Mature rocky timber. Soil. Big buck paradise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was its just really interesting. I know a lot of people would get a kick out of that. So, um, But that's just a great reminder, you know, with us being in real estate, there's a lot of things we can hopefully help you. If you're looking for land, doesn't matter where you're at, what state you're in, you can shoot us an email at info at TV, and we can do our best to help you. Uh, whether you're buying or selling, we can we can find an agent or represent you wherever you're at, hopefully, uh, and we can find a way to help you and, and make it a successful transition for you at that stage in your life. We love, 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 of course recreational tracks and you know hunting opportunities places to come enjoy family that's fun and all um but especially in our area because things and times do change um a lot of our i would say resource in the area is based around cattle um but with that even in our given area that we do a lot of local real estate with i mean we're talking land prices within the wooded acreage uh, that range from, I would say, average of 950 to 1300 an acre for yeah. wooded, kind of that go-to recreational track. And with that being said, it, it's, it's an area that's extremely feasible to come and buy land just for recreation. There's very few areas left in the country, I, I, I say that confidently, that, that it's feasible to do that. Um, so even though, despite the fact that a lot of land use around us is just strictly cattle ground, those wooded areas, um, those timber tracks have a lot of opportunity for recreational tracks at an affordable price. So it's kind of like, Hey, we, we killed two birds with one stone being here in this area, having a background in cattle, um, for both of our families, so we're selling cattle ground, but also, you know, hey, let's attract people to this area, show them through, you know, the Prairie Hollow property, through properties like Seth Harker's or the, the farm that we hunt in Lebanon, show them the potential that Southern Missouri has, and then the way to manage that property in this area that that's our strong suit and there's Um, ways to manage it to where there is income and there is great hunting oh yeah for sure to where i and i think that's the magic of what we do to where we can help landowners find ways to be productive not only with their hunting but also to where it's really the difference between a recreational farm that's just a almost everything is an expense versus a farm that's in production where you get the income, but then you also have great hunting and great, great uh, profits. Yeah. So, so that, that's kind of that wheelhouse. You know, that we we've even seen, fa- we've even seen some land in our area and know of some land that could be less than 800 bucks an acre. Yeah. And, and a lot of people would look at them as saying, I don't know about that. That's pretty messy. But we understand kind of the native landscape in that area to where you can buy that farm and manage it correctly um, to where it's extremely productive and and you can call it an investment property where you buy it at that price and then through the correct management turn around and in a couple of years have it to where it's a premier hunting farm in that region uh, to where you can almost double price per acre if managed 
correctly. Uh, and but then even I know there's some guys here that are that listen to this that are from cattle backgrounds as well. I mean, you've got the big Wasola, Missouri listing that's just under twenty two hundred acre twenty two hundred dollars an acre. And it's like premier cattle property. Yeah, it, it's a fantastic um, property, 775 acres, 700 of which are open grazing set up for rotational grazing. It's got 30 different paddocks. It's got three barns. It's got three different um, steel corrals already set up, a farmhouse, all this stuff. It's like a guy could really come in, and, and that that property is, I mean, it is set up for cattle farming um, and being profitable so I don't there's just there's just so much different opportunity and, and you know everywhere in the country there's um, you know land offers we, we kind of use the phrase it wears so many hats um, or it can and you know this area is no different it, it's diverse but um, you know we don't want to just do real estate here locally no we want to we want to do it as we're driving through Arkansas talking on a podcast um, you know sharing information we want to be able to reach out and touch um, people in Pennsylvania and Georgia who maybe okay maybe you're thinking about a property in Illinois so what doesn't matter that's that's where we can come in and help and um, for example like there's so many things that we're not just confined to southern Missouri and know that landscape we're knowledgeable across the country um, with with the habitat and the native habitat uh, like right now we're in Arkansas and you drive through and there's unmanaged timber and the whole understory is getting overtaken by sweet gums. Yep. And it, and it's just like somebody doesn't know or they they're not able to do that. But I'm sure there's a way we could help them manage that and improve the landscape to where it's more productive not only for the landowner but also for the for the wildlife. So it's more productive in the hunting standpoint as well. Um, so we're not just confined to Missouri. So if wherever you're at, give us an email info at landandlegacy.tv to let us help you um, improve your land. That's right. Well, you want to talk about some food plots? Yeah, absolutely. I I think I'm excited about it because, again, it's always good to just go back and and make notes, review what was good, what was bad, what needs to be improved, all this stuff, and then look at the success um, in the fall that we've had thus far with food plots. It's like, wow. Holy cow! These these are rocking, and and they weren't planted at a. We were a little bit late on the planting time. Yeah, if we if we had our, you know, said hey we're we're planting whenever we want to plant this and that, they would have been planted probably a week and a half earlier. But shoot, the way they look right now, and the rains obviously that we've gotten through this time frame, the weather extremely good for growing food plots in the fall. Yeah. Not like last year. No. Last year was almost non-existent food yeah. plots because of the lack of rain. And some and a couple of things we'll talk about later in the podcast. But they made it through 20 minutes of us, of us talking real estate, promising we'll talk food plots. So Let's get in uh, it. When it comes to the food plots that we tried with Stratton Seed Company um, that we were planting, implementing, one of the first ones that was so exciting was their forage soybean, the wild game changers. Now, as most people are aware, forage soybeans that are glyphosate resistant or glyphosate tolerant, um, Roundup ready, whatever keyword you want to use with that, there's not a lot of them out there. 
um, and and Stratton came onto the market, and they have been on the market, but this year was our, um, I guess, where more people were aware that Stratton was on the market with a forage soybean that was glyphosate tolerant, um, and it's a wild game changer. We planted them in many different applications and were extremely impressed. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Well, it, not just impressed from, okay, you know, that they grew, they grew great, they grew, you know, height-wise, okay. But not only did they grow fantastically for us and, and for a lot of clients and friends and people spread out across the country, um, they weren't just, you know, visually appealing. They they served their purpose in feeding deer. That's right. And and the um, the forage quality that they do have and provide is incredible. Um, even in periods that we were looking back, looking at the weather and saying, my gosh, come on, rain, come on, and rain. Uh, we need to have a little bit of a, you know, a revival, if you will. June was extremely dry. Very dry. And it's usually not in our area. But we were hoping and wishing for rain. Um, but what the soybeans did was make it through and still provide that tonnage, that forage value, and then after when it did get the rains, it's like, yeah, baby, I'm here, I'm rocking still. That's right. Uh, I th- and I th- this goes to say that we planted the Stratton soybeans with other soybean brands side by side to truly test the production of them, and and had clients do it as well in large applications. And when you looked at the performance, they were extremely similar. One might have had a little bit better root growth. One of them might have had a little bit bigger leaves, but at the end of the growing season, August or September, you look at it and go, okay, this one is now focused on pod production being the Stratton, and the others may continue growing, but the pod production is there, and the price is is almost unbeatable for the Strattons. It's almost half the price of some of the competitors, so we're just extremely pumped about the Wild Game Changers and and the production we saw out of it. We had a couple of tests. Yeah. Uh, our good friend Seth Harker, he tested them in a large, I don't even know how many acre field, a large field, but the biggest key part of his testing was a high deer density. He, Yeah, that's we don't, and it's funny because we're only probably, where the crow flies, I would say 15 miles apart, um, but his deer density over the years of his high intensity of, of managing the farm um, I would say he's probably easily got 90 deer per square mile or more. Um, lots and lots of deer that go to his food plots religiously. I mean, that that is, they get, I would say, we're talking about you know food plots being supplemental to native browse and, and this and that. His deer hit food plots hard. They and, do. And he's got tons of them. Um, anyhow, these comparisons were, were awesome. Um, and the overall result, I was actually I was there last night and hunted with and filmed, and we we're dri- walking past, walking in, walking past one of those larger destination food plots, and on the edge of that food plot, close to the road, I was noticing, you know, every edge it gets browsed the hardest, but it was like a soybean plant that was, I would say, between six and eight inches tall. But, and you could tell, I mean, it just put off shoots and shoots and shoots. So it was just stems. A lot of stems and bean pods on, on a plant that was six to eight inches tall. And I would say anywhere from 15 to 25 
full pods, not not just the the pod that's got the pod and no bean, like full pod with soybeans in there drying out right now in a plant that is six to eight inches bushy-ish, if you will, off the ground. It, it was crazy. It's like, wow, even though they they made it through all that browse pressure, they're still putting on like viable, attractive um, belly filling pots. Like, yeah. that's fantastic. What what more do you want from a from a bean that can withstand all of that throughout this time? You know, throughout the intensity of the the forage it took to then still put on something that you know December is going to be an incredible resource. That's right. And I we've had we had I I can think of one client, one friend of ours that planted a six acre field in beans high deer numbers and or in a bottom high deer numbers and one side of the field where the deer come out it was like that's closest to the bedding he had beans knee high and on the other side they were about neck high and he's a six three so he had he had beans every bit of stacked up five foot and Mm -hmm. and plus tall um in a in a field that was not fenced. Yeah. Um, now there's guys where you think that you can just go out and plant anything since they are forage beans. You can just plant any opening in these beans and they're going to grow. That's not the case. Nope. I mean, we're seeing it on our on on the Prairie Hollow farm and my family farm that where we have a lot of deer browse that they're not getting the production that you waist high or taller that you may want, but you're getting them to feed the deer through the summer months and then make pods where they can feed the deer into the winter Um, that's not the way we look at soybeans and say okay this is a fix all i'll plant soybeans and this will be food year round they are a high quality attraction but we look at other ways to supplement them by then planting in the fall with some greens to where we can hopefully have standing grain with the greens so you have the best of both worlds if it's warm they're coming to the food plot to eat the greens if it's cold they're coming to the food plot to eat the grains the the standing beans and we have that in a couple of places where we didn't fence we didn't put up a single fence this year um we've talked about that in the past it's kind of you it, it can be a great hunting strategy but at the same time if you have limited food why are you fencing the deer out of a and you call and, and you're wanting to call yourself a game manager or a farm manager? Why are you taking some of the best food in the neighborhood and keeping them out of it? Um, At that point, you're just a killer. <laughs> that's it. You, it's focus on hunting strategy when we should really be focused on overall health of the deer. Um, and so we have one big food plot, probably two acres, maybe just under two acres. It's so in between knee high and waist high. That's got standing pods, um, standing wild game changer soybeans with pods everywhere and greens underneath it. This is one of the biggest things that I know is the difference between some of the other um, forage soybeans on the market and the game changer forage soybeans is the group. Uh, and basically indeterminate determinate soybeans, some of them will continue growing and putting on new leaves until the very first hard frost and then it, those leaves will start turning yellow and dwindle away. The game changers are a bean that will start turning yellow earlier in the fall or later in the summer to where there's a window there to where you can establish greens after the leaves start dwindle, dwindling away and the first frost. 
So you have this window in there where you can establish the gra- the greens within the standing grains. And that's what I love about the, the soybeans the most probably when we're looking at it from the fall standpoint is I have plenty of time to get something else established. So once those, the problem is if you have a soybean that stays green all the way to the first frost, you can't establish a green underneath it, a cover crop, to where once those beans are eaten, you have bare ground and stems, and you don't have anything protecting your soil during the harsh months of winter. Um, and that's that can be a big problem. So it allows us to establish a cover crop or a, or a green food plot underneath it and have something growing till we plant something else the next spring. And, and uh, you know, everyone's season opens up at a different time. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, there is advantages of having really lush, green-looking food uh, soybeans that deer will hit early on. But here, here's the thing. As you're planting your fall food plots, or, or you know, once you're done with your spring food plots, save some soybeans and plant them late August or, or mid-August, plant them, let them come up, and then you have even fresher, greener, more tender, attractive soybeans to hunt over at that time frame. Um, I, I will say this for sure, though. I would much rather have a bean that loses its leaves in September so that the, the productiveness of that plot is much higher throughout longer portions of the year because of the fact that you just said we can go in and broadcast this little legacy blend or whatever type of blend you're planting into the soybeans. It's basically saying, do you want maximum production out of your soybeans or do you want maximum production out of your food plot? And most people would say, I want maximum production out of my food plot. Well, then you need a, f- a soybean that's not staying green to the first frost. You would rather have one that can stay green through the summer but then start turning off and losing leaves before the first frost. That way you can get an established green plot um, cover crop into those beans. For sure. And so to me, you know, we did another test where we had an area where there was a lot of deer pressure on our beans. And um, we basically let the, we were like, you know, there's a lot of pressure here. We're we're probably going to have really short beans. We're not going to have a lot of pod production. So as we started seeing some weeds grow up, and we've heard this from other people where they've done it, they let the weeds grow up a little bit to where it kind of protects those beans. Well, we did that with some foxtail. Uh, there was foxtail millet growing up, which is just a weed that a lot of people don't want. And we just let yeah, it grow. Grass. And so we had foxtail millet uh, just under waist high, and the beans were right there with them. So the beans were growing with the foxtail millet. Well, as we sprayed it out before the foxtail millet started going to seed and making a head, we sprayed it out, and as it started dwindling down, we watched the beans getting eaten down with it as well to where we has, we still have beans there, uh, but it was just an area right next to a big one of the biggest bedding areas on the on the Prairie Hollow property to where we fed the deer, but we didn't get the tremendous pod production because we had such a heavy heavy deer pressure. Now we've got beans now knee high loaded with pods, but it's not maximum production at waist high beans loaded with pods. But we fed the deer, so it was a a huge plus. Um, 
what else? That's pretty much all I got on the game changers. Yeah, I would say overall, um, just a recap on them. Production throughout the entire summer, fantastic. That's not Rumble Strip. That's just poor roads in Arkansas. Sorry, yeah. had to make that disclaimer. Um, great tonnage produced. And now we're getting into the pop production and seeing just how good they they stack up and the amount of forage that they're going to offer for late season. And I know we'll say this again later on the podcast when we get into broadcasting and drilling the fall, the fall blends. But for real, for real, I don't think in a, in a given year, especially on the Prairie Hollow property, that there's been as much food from start of growing season to the end of growing season within the food plots than this year. No, not a, not a chance because we have three new food plots. Uh, we planted a portion of a bigger field that we've planted in corn in the past uh, for the cow side. Um so There's yeah, more tonnage in the woods because we, of the timber harvest. We had offsetting better, browse pressure and such. And we had a huge, probably the best acorn crop Puh. that I've ever seen on the farm. There are acorns I mean, everywhere, everywhere. And so yeah, we have a ton of food it's now. Like walking on marbles out there. The acorn production is going to make it a little more difficult, but <laughs> late season should be fantastic because we have had a wet a wet fall to where the acorns are probably going to spoil a lot earlier than they did last year. Um, is there anything else on the wild game changers that I can think of? Probably not. Highly impressed. i say if oh. you're looking for a forward soybean for your food plots at an affordable price, check out Stratton Seed Company's wild game changer because I think you'll be blown away at the price. Yeah, blown away at that. And then the, the productiveness. Um, but be sure – and, and it's never too early, really, to truly start preparing for your next year, uh, next spring. But one thing, as a that, that company continues to grow and expand, be looking for dealers and talking with dealers in your area to possibly um, bring on Stratton Seed as a dealer so that it's available to you and your community um, there locally. That's right. Oh, next up was the Heritage Blend that we planted in the spring. The Heritage Blend was really kind of our, our baby there. That's that's one that had been worked and tweaked for um And still many, getting many tweaked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was like it's bagged up, it's available to everyone else, and it's cool to see. And, uh, like, getting the pictures from people in Georgia, tagging Land I was land just legacy. thinking about the Georgia guy, a friend of our Caleb down there, that mm-hmm. uh, the wild game changer soybeans. I think he had four hundred or four hundred twenty-four uh, p- seeds um, with his one of his game changer plots. So just at you, un- you said plot, you mean plant plots. He had four hundred twenty-four seeds on his plant. Yes, uh, a yes. single bean a single stem. Plant. Pulled it out, 424, which is just a ton. Um, so, pretty incredible. But he planted this heritage blend and had amazing results. Yes. Um, and, and I think it's just cool to see that success spread throughout the country in all these different regions. Um, and and what ha- another reason for that success is the diversity within the blend itself. Um, it can be grown in so many different types of areas and offer 
advantages to so many different types of species and at times of the growing season. You go through so many different changes and, and I, I think what often people forget about is the stress period in late summer when you know native forage, the quality goes down and starts to make seed. Um, what we saw specifically with the heritage was that time frame, cow peas and lab lab and ab- sun hemp and sun hemp absolutely were ridiculous, continuing to grow. The lab lab, those leaves were the size of your hand, um, and the just the incredible tonnage that they produced in that in that stress period was like, I'm sold. That's right. I'm yeah. sold. And even now, still growing. It's still green. And we had, I mean, it's been, we've had temperatures in the high 30s a couple of mornings this past week. And it still just looks incredible. And, and we kind of reached the point in August where it's like, okay, I think the sun hemp's dwindling down. Well, then we got more rain and all of a sudden it's exploded again to where it's like, this is incredible. And I, and I think that was the, one of the things, there was a, a spot where we planted the heritage blend as a screen but also summer forage, yep. and what we noticed, what, and we added some corn to it just to see about what it would do in that mix, and the corn got knocked over and eaten out by the raccoons, yep. I think, or yep. bears, and it was like, uh-oh, what a, I hope the sun hemp provides enough for a screen, and it's blown up so much that it's like, yeah, it's going to be no just fine. Question. When you combine that, the sun hemp, with the amount of vining species of the lab lab and the cowpeas, we have just a tremendous, tremendous screen to where now if people watch our Facebook page, there's a little spot where we're going to slip through that to hunt the legacy blend on the west side of the field. And it's like that is just when you describe the best of both worlds, you're looking for something that can provide food and then cover. And that that did it. Oh, and, it's, it's and done it. The question that's popped up a couple times is, are you not afraid of deer coming to the Heritage Blend to eat during the fall? But that we answer that with, when we're going to hunt that blind, the preferred food source will be a young, tender, palatable green like the Legacy Blend that we have out front. Mm-hmm. As we let the Heritage Blend mature, it's going to be more of pods and and uh, they're not really going to be eaten on the sun hemp now because it is going to be so tall um, that it's really stemmy down where the deer can reach and all the young growth is up high. Um, so, you know, I'm, we're not worried about that at all. Plus, it's so doggone thick. <laughs> it would be, I mean, it, it kind of resembles, when you look at it, it almost looks like a kudzu patch because of the vines of the lab lab and, and iron clay peas or cow peas have just vined everywhere to where it looks like it's eating, it's eating up the sun hemp because it's just, it's just vines everywhere. But there's right. so much sun hemp, so much milo even hidden in there. There is a bunch. Um, the sunflowers came on and bloomed early, um, and of course they they made seed. Uh, we had a, a huge crop of uh, goldfinches and other songbirds come in and eat a lot of the seeds from they the sunflowers. It. Yeah. But sunflowers is great for the soil as well, so we got our it, we got uh, our money out of the sun, the sunflower. Same thing with the buckwheat, mine nutrients, provided forage during the summer months, made blooms for the uh, pollinator species. Um, but it's kind of gone away now, and so yeah, we. What I love about the buckwheat is its intensity in which it germinates, and its its productiveness too. Once it 
germinates and takes a sprout, it's gone. Yeah. But, like, the next week, you're like, is that flowering already? Like, yeah. It's crazy how, how quickly it grows, which is necessary, though, as we see with a lot of times, you know, coming out of the spring, that first thing to green up, you need all that additional growth to help nurse the more important things along, like the soybeans, the the lab lab, the cow peas, everything that a lot of the, the browse pressure is going to receive. It needs that, that nurse crop from the buckwheat to really get established. And not to say that they don't eat buckwheat at all, because that's not true. They will definitely forage on it, but it just... That's its main role within this blend. Yeah, yeah, and, and so we did something. We planted the heritage blend because the great thing with it having oh nine species in it, the great thing about it is, as we just kind of talked about, is each one of them has a different peak time to where um, some are going to come on really quickly and be very productive early. Some are going to be more productive later in the summer, and then everything productive in between because they're all warm season plants. Um, that that allows them to lean on each other and support each other to where one that's getting browsed heavily can probably probably hide um, and be protected from one of the other species that may be already matured or is getting more taller and so it doesn't get completely wiped out of the blend or wiped out of the field. Um, one thing that we did do... Um, there, that is a that some may see as a negative. If you are fighting kind of noxious weeds or invasive weeds um, in your food plot area, your opening, you may want to plant something that is more herbicide resistant, so you can take care of that invasive species. Say it's Cerise Lespedeza or Johnson grass or spotted knapweed, whatever it is. You probably you could try and do a spray and smother method where you spray it one time and then plant something like the Heritage Blend, but if it comes back. You can't come through and spray out the heritage blend or spray the heritage blend with the herbicide and kill out all the weeds and leave all nine species unaffected. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's where the, that's where that wild game changer comes right in. It's like that's yeah. your that's your tool for that season. Yes, knock and, out the the invasive and. And move so on. for us, we're going to this this past year we planted all like nine food plots on the family farm in the heritage blend, but. Um, and that was because we had such poor soil uh, for years and years of plowing and disking that we're like, we need something that can probably withstand the browse pressure, um, but also we know we're going to get a lot of growth. And so we planted the Herod's Blend. Well, being a working cow, cattle farmer, now everybody that hunts around cows or plants food plots around cows knows where this story's going. We had some cows get out and eat one of the food plots down and to where there wasn't a lot of the heritage been left in patches. Well, exposed ground, not as much growing. During late May, June. During late May and June meant that nature is going to put something back growing to where there's sunlight reaching the soil to where something else is going to grow. And that was crabgrass. And we talked about it on the podcast of being like, well, I'd rather have the crabgrass than bare ground. That's, that, that's a great comparison because the last thing we want is bare ground. But here's what we're realizing with crabgrass, and we don't have research, scientific research to back this caveat. up. There, this there's been some research done, not that it has been inconclusive, but a little bit of varying um, results, I think, from these tests. So, you know, until we're 100% certain 
and can provide that data itself that we're confident in sharing, well, we won't make the claim. We will just infer of there's our observation. It's a good chance, or it looks like it may be the case that crabgrass is an aleopathic plant, similar to uh, a lot of times you think of black walnuts. Mm-hmm. Um, goldenrod is one of them. S- some of the sumacs are, are also aleopathic to basically mean that they have the ability through through their root system to help fight off other plants to where they can have the upper hand in that area. Sometimes they secrete other chemicals that will inhibit the root structure and development of other plants. So they are the um, top dog in the area, basically. That's right. And so what we noticed was once the, and we'll walk you through a several month process, is what we noticed was the cows came in, ate the heritage blend down, opened the door for crabgrass to get established. We decided because June was so dry that we were not going to spray out the crabgrass and leave bare ground and try to plant heritage blend again and let it grow with very very few rain chances that we just let the crabgrass grow well it got established and when we came back in August and sprayed out the food plots to plant our fall blend we that worked we, great we, it killed Everything in the plot, including the crabgrass, but then we drilled our legacy blend in, and we realized that where there was no crabgrass, we had beautiful, great-looking food plots. But where where there was crabgrass, we have very little growth. And we're starting to get more now, but there was definitely a stunted period in there to where it was like, what is going on? It's not the fact that there's too much thatch because... The, there's thatch everywhere. Uh, we haven't ever had that issue. We have great sea-to-soil contact because we used a no-till drill. The only issue we is... We got rains. We had great rains. And we're going, okay, there's something else here. That's when the research started, and, and we found a couple of people s- claiming and a couple research things talking about the aleopathic... Tendencies, uh, qualities of crabgrass. crabgrass. Well, and, and honestly, <coughs> regardless of... The data or not, <coughs> as we looked at the food plots, it was very evident that something in particular is occurring within the areas that have a thick mat of crabgrass in that plot. And it was very evident just visually because in those areas that had maybe patches of crabgrass or very thin um, established areas, our food plot was just rocking green as a gourd, doing its thing like it should. So we had limited success this year in that plot, thanks cows, um, because they came in and ate, and then well, decisions we, that were we, made. We butchered the, yesterday, two right. days ago. So we'll thank them when we get that those steaks back. They'll be all gristly and nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Dang Milo. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Next year, to, to tackle that crabgrass, because we have had that issue in the past um, with crabgrass getting established, we will be planting the wild game changer soybeans and spraying a couple times in the spring to, or in throughout the summer to kill out the crabgrass and start this process of fighting back the noxious weeds or, or the weeds that we don't want, crabgrass being one of them. You, don't, um, you know what's stronger than allopathic tendencies in crabgrass? Glyphosate. Yep. 
Uh, <laughs> so gotcha. the, the and that's the other thing about what would happen if we were to go back in and disc that up. Well, we just turn up other crabgrass seed to where th- that wouldn't fix the problem. We couldn't fix this problem by disking and plowing. Plus, we would change the soil infrastructure by doing that. So our method will be a one or two dose treatment of glyphosate um, to to kill out this crabgrass and get some other things established and who's to say the crabgrass may not have now we had that really really dry summer um, to where it did affect our uh, it did affect the the growth of our heritage blend but if we were to have ample rain we could have probably had our heritage blend get well enough established that it shaded out the ground and the crabgrass didn't stand a chance. No. But that's that's where we felt with the with the heritage blend beyond impressed and uh, hey ex- excited for the fall. Quick shout out as we're driving through Arkansas, we're passing Hall's Game Preserve, our buddy Sawyer Hall in Con almost well just north of Conway, Damascus, Arkansas. What up, man? Yeah, if you're looking for a quail, uh, a quail hunt. Give him a shout. That's right. Uh, we went there for your bachelor party. It was a lot of fun. Yep. The Heritage Blend, which is the Balance of Fixation Clover, cr- Clemson Clover, Frosty Persean Clover, Oats, and Shredded Kale. We planted that. Seems to be coming along great. Uh, it's a bunch of annuals, and it was just kind of a, a mix-up to get more in our smaller areas where Clover is probably going to ha- be better established than, than the Legacy Blend. It's kind of one of those things you know hey i don't really know exactly how this area is going to hunt it's an opening i think it could be good um throw out an annual like this blend in the fall time give it a whirl set up a stand see kind of how deer react to it and you're not putting tons of money and investment into truly developing it into a food plot it's kind of like that you know testing out the waters if you will yep uh and then we have the revival um, blend, which is red clover, ladino clover, alfalfa, and chicory. So it's our perennials. Uh, we planted that in a couple of our food plots that we know are going to be more established for uh, for a lot of browse pressure. We have a lot of deer in the area, and we need something that can take that, and that's where the clovers and alfalfa and chicory are coming in. Um, once again, we've got three lagoons, the alfalfa, the clovers, or the white clover and the red clover. So we're fixating nitrogen. And then we include a broadleaf like chicory to help take some of that nitrogen out of the soil and and, and it will help the chicory out a lot better. Now, we also establish this with wheat and oats just to provide some other grasses in there or grasses in there to help with the diversity um, and help kind of provide a cover crop or a uh, uh, a nurse crop for the, for the legumes as they get um, mature or start to mature. So... We're very excited about that one. It seems to be coming along great. This is one of them where step one, plant in the fall, will probably also frost seed and uh, make it even thicker this next year, uh, this next yeah, probably March February, March, um, and, and see what we can uh, establish with that. But we're super excited about that one as well. Uh, one that we haven't, we don't have on our list, but we also planted about two bottom fields in the Cattleman's Treasure, which mm-hmm. is a cover crop blend. Purple Top Turnip, the Balance of Fixation Clover, Winter Wheat, Frosty Bursine Clover, Oats, Tritic Kale, Cereal Rye, and Daikon Radish. That one will be awesome uh, to graze in January, but we're going to have a lot of food for the deer till then. Um, so we're excited about that one. Seems to be coming along great. 
Um, we're running lower on time, so I'm going to go ahead and go to the Legacy Blend because yep. that's our pride and joy for the fall food plots. It's got Crimson Clover, Blance of Fixation Clover, Frosty Bersine Clover, Austrian Winter Peas, Triticale Winter Wheat, Cereal Rye, Oats, Daikon Radish, Purple Top Turnip, Rape, and a Hybrid Turnip. I will say with confidence, and a lot of it is weather-dependent, but these are the best food plots we've had in since I've been in Missouri. Yeah. With the success of the Legacy Blend and two different planting methods, too. And I think that's an important topic to kind of cover in the time left is, hey, we did, again, further experiments with um, understanding the reaction, um, germination rate, and success rate of broadcasting versus no-till drilling in the fall yes and and we've done we did both methods this year and we did methods of those last year and it's a great reminder of of the success that you can have with both or failures that you can have with both Mm -hmm. um the window of failure is bigger with broadcasting yeah but you can still have success with broadcasting um, the no-till drill application, the way to use when you're using it, is much more safe, consistent of I, I'm, I'm bettering my chances to have a successful food plot. But not to say you can't have a successful food plot without a no-till drill. Um, last year, we broadcasted a majority of our fall food plots, and so our technique was spray the spring crop out, broadcast and then we rolled it, laid it over with the cultipacker. Um, and then we waited on rain for two and a half months. Yeah. And so we did not have success with that method. Which was a direct result of lack of rain, not method. Though. Not method. We've had success with that method. but Killer success. It's, it's very weather dependent with yep. that method. If you do not get the timely rains, you will have a better chance of failure. And let's talk about the rains that you're looking for, though, too, because even in even in this year, um, we broadcasted prior to a rain um, that I believe it was two inches in like three hours, something like that. Yes. Um, in a very intense rain just ahead of that storm, and we had planted a mixture of smaller seeds and then um, oats in this small area, a little bit of an elevation change just just a kind of a wing and a prayer deal. Um, and what basically was the result, uh, <laughs> that elevation change and intensity of rain washed seed off the food plot and down into the edge of the woods. Now, I will say this. It's kind of like people are probably like, well, duh. The weather was not calling for that intense Calling for a rain. half of an inch. Yeah. So and we got two inch or three inches. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. It's important to share this that you know you are looking for soaking rains, not heavy gully washers to come and move seed off your food plots and down to drains, um, you know, into the edges of the timber. Like we had a rain yesterday where we got just under half an inch in a matter of about eight hours of rain. Beauty. So that was fantastic rain. But whenever we had it come down in a gully washer and you get a lot of runoff, that's when it carried the seed off. And we had nice green patches in our woods that 
was green for a while. Now it's just they're too close together. Way too and, close, yellowing out. And starting, yeah, starting to really compete with each other and dwindle away. So um, that was one of the problems with broadcasting. The other one being lack of rain. So getting too much rain or not enough rain. Um, and, and so that's just a problem that you can face with those methods. But you want to see a weather forecast where you have a chance of rain or guaranteed rain almost three days in a row to where you know you're going to get good rains that are going to soak the seed, allow it to germinate, and still be plenty of moisture in the soil to where it can, it can start putting off a root system and growing. Yeah, and, and we did have that this fall, so therefore we've had great success in areas that we've just simply broadcasted the Legacy Blend in or the Cattleman's Treasure in, broadcasted, and, and the seed took off and germinated, and I would say the results are identical to no-till drilling. But that's, again, a direct relationship to the amount, quality, and quantity of rain that we've gotten this fall since planting. That's right. Um, I think that pretty well, hopefully, if you guys have any questions on that, go to gostrattonseed.com or landandlegacy.tv. Shoot us an email, info at landandlegacy.tv. Or you can give Stratton a phone call at uh, 1-800-264-4433 to see their specialty seed division. Um, That Overall, super happy with our food plots um, it's kind of funny for us because we have been so pumped about our great food plots only to see the most massive acorn crop. It's honestly just ironic. And so it's like, okay, well, now we have to wait for the acorns to go away before we can um, truly pattern and kill deer consistently off of these incredible, immaculate-looking food plots. You'll see you know, the podcast image this week is is one of the food plots. It's like, boy, that looks that looks incredible, guys. I've been sure deer are crushing it. And you're like, well, not yet. That's because of the power of the acorns. And But late November, December is going to be incredible as uh, that food resource is still available and uh, highly attractive. And while we're talking about food plots and seed, it's also coming up to the time of year when purchasing native seeds, native grasses and wildflowers, uh, for bedding areas or pollinator species or buffer edge strips, edge blend for the food plots. I'm super excited to get that in the ground on a lot of our food plots uh, from Pure Air Natives. Uh, we had Justin on the podcast back in, I don't even remember, July oh, yeah, I would say or July. August. And it was August. We yep. covered some of the blends that we came up with them. Um, we've got the edge blend. We've got the prairie blend phase two. We've got the tall screen, uh, Prairie Blend Phase 1, working on a couple of others that hopefully you guys uh, will take advantage of. Because these prices, what we did was we cut out a lot of the really expensive species that are required in a lot of government contracts. But um, since we're planting these in smaller areas for the deer hunter guys, we cut out the expensive ones and we got the price way down compared to other places. So, I mean, we're looking at a bedding blend um, that's a hundred around one hundred and eight dollars an acre, versus fifty dollars per pound and six pounds required per acre. So you do the math on that. This is a much more affordable option. And by calling into 
Fury or get in touch with Justin. Ooh, There's 636 357 6433, and you tell him you heard it on the Land Legacy, you get a 10% discount off the additional lower price compared to others. So I would Boom. encourage you to check it out at purenatives.com. Um, so I know we're excited for those. We're excited for the next food plot season. We're excited to hunt over our food plots. Um, but we have a couple more things to cover before we wrap this podcast up. Last year, last week we ran out of time. This week we're not going to run out of time. So we have our plants and animals uh, and quick information on those. Hey, real quick, we did strike success too um, this past week hunting. People always love a hunting update. Was fortunate enough to kill a doe over some acorns on the edge of a food plot. Um, so we're getting out. Check out the hunting podcast to hear that yeah. story. Weather's weather's getting right. So my plant this week is not a good plant. This is kind of an awareness. Quack, quack, quack. awareness do, I, do I need update. to hit the rumble strips? Yeah. <laughs> we have bush honeysuckle. It's an ornamental gone wrong. Um, I'm driving down the road reading these couple of these tidbits, but bush honeysuckle, it's kind of it's one of those things you see a lot around big cities. They got fishing in the parking lot. There you go. Um, <laughs> you see a lot of uh, bush honeysuckle in the East Coast. You see it in Illinois. You see it in Missouri. Kansas um, City. You see it all over. Uh, it's kind of that mid-Atlantic, Midwest invasive species. The leaves are, they hang on later than almost any species in the understories of, uh, basically anywhere there's bush honeysuckle, you'll see it hanging on leaves later than a lot of our native species, and it'll be one of the first ones to green up in the spring. Um, the leaves are are uh, basically on the stem, they're opposite of each other, and it has tons of red berries this time of the year. The thing about bush honeysuckle that we should all be concerned about is its invasive nature takes over the understory of of woodlots. Well, if you're looking at one woodlot that is 100 foot tall, dominated by oaks, bear with me now, I'm going to give you an analogy. 100 foot oaks, and you're looking at, that's the generation right now. That's, that's making up the generations to come. And they're making acorns, and they're dropping that next generation of seed or, or a couple generations down the road of seed well, that acorn is trying to sprout and grow up in the understory that is an understory dominated by bush honeysuckle. So those young oaks aren't getting the amount of nutrition or sunlight that they need to continue growing, and they end up dying off to where you don't have that next generation of oaks coming on. You have a, a dominance of bush honeysuckle in the understory to where they're making tons of seed because they can tolerate that shade to where... Now you have a woodlot that was once an oak-dominated woodlot to now a bush honeysuckle as those older oaks continue to die out or get harvested. That's the huge problem with bush honeysuckle, as well as other understory um, invasive species. Um, bush honeysuckle, non-native, came from Asia. Um, go figure, a lot of our invasives do. But it was planted to stabilize soil and reclaim areas in the 60s, but it was brought over in 1897 for city landscapes and ornamental use. Oh, man, what a facepalm time that was. Yeah. Um, it's easy to grow. It's basically from anywhere east coast all the way to Texas, Kansas, Nebraska, and North Dakota. Um, 
it was introduced in Oregon as well. So hello, West Coast guys. You're going to have it probably soon enough if you don't have it already. Um, it has aleopathic capabilities, so it can really help fight out competition in the understories and weed them out to where it controls the understory. That um, right there, I, I don't know if you know aleopathic is a new term for you know listeners, um, but that <coughs> I guess capability of plants to be able to communicate, inhibit, um, and you know promote themselves basically goes into further, I guess, reasoning that plants are very, very complex. Yes. That's why we're sharing these plants and specifically, you know, their characteristics because they're not just, it's not just vegetation. Like these, every plant is very, very unique, just like animals that we talk about. Um, So just because plants don't have a mouth and a tongue to speak, they still communicate through their root systems. Yeah. And branches and everything. um, Basically, bush honeysuckle is a bad deal. Uh, And get out this this fall. While you're in a tree stand, if you're noticing everything, all the leaves have fallen or have changed and you still have something in the understory that's green, try to take a a picture of it, identify it, and try to figure out if that is bush honeysuckle or another invasive species, and you need to eliminate it that fall. You better not have cabin fever. You go out there... January and February, you cut that down. That's right. You treat those stones. If you're down south, another thing would be Chinese privet. And the only reason I bring yep. that up is because we're in we're Arkansas it right and now. it's <laughs> everywhere right now. But yeah. anyway, that's my plant, bush honeysuckle, highly invasive, and it's really been on my mind a lot because I'm seeing it everywhere. So for this week's animal, I'm driving, but Adam will read some. But to, to introduce it, um, this animal I, I think has a really bad rap. It's like the coyote. Um, yeah, you know, but truly has impacted um, North America greatly. And it's honestly goes way back to explorers, um, trappers, and just its expansion westward. And it's kind of, it's a extremely, um, gosh, I, I, cool critter because of, I, I don't know of another one that has its, its capabilities to greatly impact um, and provide homes, structure, um, develop its uh, its own ecosystem that that benefits uh, a, a wide variety of other plants and animals. And we're talking about the largest rodent in North America, the beaver, American beaver. It's been through. It's a great, honestly, conservation story though too, because of the um, highly desired furs that drove people further west to find these areas that were um, not trapped. I mean, yeah, that were had been untrapped, basically, and, and unfortunately, even they before, the heck out of them. Even before America was a country yeah. and people were coming to North America to um, explore, a lot of that was led by trapping and people trapping these beavers and sending the pelts back to Europe to actually make hats. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the top hats back in those days were, were made out of beaver hides. So, um, definitely a uh, a really cool animal that has really shaped this country. It um, truly has, and, and not many animals, I think, get to say that, um, put that on their resume, you know? So as you said, it's the largest rodent in, in the country, and it's also a, uh, a species that probably, um, next to humans, can shape the habitat or the landscape more. I mean, huge impacts. And I, that in and of itself, though, is the 
is I think a blessing and a curse and why a lot of people hate it. Because overnight they can dam up streams, that which then results in flooding crop fields and this and that. But as a result of all of that, you know, you're creating so much more habitat for other game. Ducks, you're creating wetlands. Too. Yeah. Um, wetlands, and you, you know the benefits of having wetlands and the, and the effects it has on soil. Um, they're, ex- they're the livers soil of and water, water yes. resources and filter system. So that's where, I mean, you just picture uh, when you read about the early exploration and the amount of mosquitoes, yeah. Uh, but also the amount of marshes and wetlands that they came across, and a lot of that was was shaped by beavers and the ever changing. They're called the busybody animal because they're always constantly um, Work. working and changing and flooding and falling trees and building new dams and building new lodges and moving around and, and shaping the landscape and constantly changing it, um, adding diversity to it. There you go. Adding diversity. Um, and so they are a super cool one. Um, basically. Oh man! I would say before you, or, or you know, before you, well, I, cuss we've a beaver. Already, we've, uh, yeah. you know, consider the impacts that that beaver has had on you know other game species, and and uh, share that information, that insight, and that perspective with someone because I, it, you know, beaver's just one example of uh, you know one animal impacting a greater ecosystem. It has a huge impact, but. You know, this is just one one small example of, of other animals helping other animals out. One thing uh, that I'll, I'll add, strip. I haven't, I haven't, yeah, I probably could hear my voice change when we hit that. <laughs> one. That was a good one. Um, one thing that I'll add that's not in this on this website that I was just scanning through to get some more interesting facts. But did you know that some of this is kind of gross? Oh, I know what you're going with. But real quick, real quick before that, um, beavers can go underwater. For 15 minutes, hold the breath for 15 minutes. As a mammal, Are you as a kidding mammal. Kidding me? What? God's cool. Yeah, that totally is just a cool animal. Um, their teeth never stop growing. Yep. So that's one of the reasons why they're constantly chewing on trees and dropping trees, just because if they didn't, I imagine it would look like those people that never cut their fingernails and they no, just start gross. curling. Ew. It'd probably just curl, curl up in. underneath their chin and start yeah. choking them out. That's right. <laughs> so they're constantly. Um, chewing and and trying to keep their teeth um, controlled uh the what i was going to mention was the castor oil the Mm -hmm. castor gland which is basically right there around their uh their butt their butt um is used for a lot of different things including some of our food um artificial flavoring flavoring so specifically uh, like blueberry, ras- like ra- blue, raspberry. Blue, blue raspberry, I believe. So, yeah. like, if you saw a uh, an ingredient that says like castor oil um, on a something flavored blue raspberry, there's a chance that that could have came from the castor gland of a uh, of a beaver. So, beaver butt, like those those dum dums that everyone loves, like the blue dum dums. That is a blue raspberry, I believe, that has got castor oils in it. So. <laughs> You're licking on beaver butt, basically. Yes, yeah. <laughs> if you want to think about it like that. Sure. Um, but anyway, the native range extends from uh, north throughout much of North America, with the exception of the peninsula of Florida, because, you know, they get eaten by a gator. Yeah. Um, and then the deserts and, of course, the Arctic tundra. So they cover a huge area. Um, very, very interesting animal. Oh, you know, the other thing that I think they 
they said, or that was, was we were reading earlier, um, really poor eyesight and really poor hearing. Yeah. But their nose is what they live by. They yep. live by their nose. That's well, right. That's pretty cool. So, anyway, the American beaver and the non-American <laughs> bush honeysuckle. Yeah. You're so unwelcome. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this week's podcast. Go check out Stratton C, GoStrattonC.com, Pure Air Natives for the native grasses and wildflowers. And because uh, it is getting ready to be planting time on those species, and you can prepare for food plot season next spring by locating dealers for Stratton Seed in your area. And if you have I, any real estate questions, info at landandlegacy.tv. Hopefully we can find you a a nice farm in southern Missouri because if you're outside of southern Missouri, let's say you're in Iowa or Illinois, land's a whole lot cheaper where we're at. (laughs) That's right. That's right. And we're here, not up there where you're at, even though we can come up there. Anyway, we will talk to you guys next time. See ya.